This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The increase in the number of women in the C-suite is on the rise, but maybe not as fast as would be liked by many. Still, being an executive in today's environments in business, especially in retail, leaves many executives with even greater challenges. Maureen Chiquet was the global CEO of Fashion House Chanel, just leaving that role last year after a long run with them. And she's telling her story about working there and her career in the new book, Beyond the Label, Women, Leadership, and Success on Our Own Terms. And it's great to have Maureen with us here on Knowledge at Wharton. Maureen, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, your time with Chanel, what are the, the the greatest things in terms of the lessons you learned? At, I mean, the Chanel brand is obviously such a, a massive thing. And, and I would think there are, there are things that you pick up probably every week as the, as the person running that company. That's exactly right. I think some of the greatest lessons, or I should say they're, they're really two big lessons. One, it was an iconic brand, right? A historical brand with a heritage, an amazing story. Gabrielle's story is like no other. Balancing that with stepping into this new world, this disruptive world, this world of internet and globalization and the millennials was really something interesting. So how do you create that balance? How do you actually really go beyond the label of the brand and create a new kind of meaning every day in what you do? So that was one of the things. And I think the second thing is something I learned towards the tail end of when I was there, at least the last, I'd say, three years, which how, how important culture is in companies in terms of really tapping into what you do well what, where you can bring value as a company right. and how that connects with consumers of today. But, but because the brand itself is so well-known and seemingly it is a connection with, with so many women uh, around the globe, even that shift to millennials and having them having more of a say in the Internet and, and, and where our society is today, that didn't seem to negatively impact it. I mean, maybe there was a little bit of understanding and kind of a roll with the punches mentality to a degree. No, I think, you know, the last decade has been really interesting because I think the Internet, the digital revolution is gaining momentum. So you're right that I think in general, luxury brands are continuing to prosper. A lot of that has to do with China, too, don't forget. Sure, yeah. So I yeah. think what's going to be interesting is the next 10 years and as we go forward, because what I'm seeing is that while millennials love beauty just like we all do, they also care about other things. I mean, they've grown up with these environmental disasters, social injustices, which they can view on the Internet you know, 24-7. So their hearts and minds and souls are slightly in different places than maybe our generation. So I think we've still got changes that are coming down the pipe that we haven't yet noticed. And companies are really going to have to think deeply about how to be addressing those desires, those new needs of, the, of this next generation. Your story uh, is interesting because uh, you're, I read you're a St. Louis native. I uh, am. And, and I'm guessing a Cardinals fan. It's, it's a, a <laughs> little bit. My parents would like me to say that, Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, but it was a study abroad program in, in France that really kind of got you pushing into this industry and, and being a part of this culture, correct? Absolutely. I, actually, the first time I went to France, I was 16. 
And I just fell wow. in love with the language. Uh, I mean, my father spoke French, and I idolized my father when I was young, and I had a great teacher, and you know how that goes. Mm-hmm. So I went when I was 16, and it just burst open all of my senses. I landed in the south of France, which you know is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yep. And between the light on the limestone and the smell of the wonderful lavender and the taste of all the goat cheese, because goat cheese <laughs> was important to me, as you know, in the book, it yes. burst open my senses and it gave me an, sort of the, the notion that that was important, that, that my senses were something that could lead me somewhere. But it, it changes your, your thought process about life and what you want. You know, having such that 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 different uh, experience than what you had been used to growing up in St. Louis. That's exactly right. It really expanded my horizons, and it got me in touch with something that I just didn't know existed for me before, which was this idea that actually my senses might lead me somewhere. Yeah. And I don't. I really, you know, it's funny because people say, "Well, yeah, did you love fashion as a young child? Did you, you know, I love clothes." But I never could connect that to what I'd be doing later. And I kept it, it. The thing with France just stayed with me in a way and became kind of the thing I needed to go back to all the time. Uh, we're talking with Maureen Chiquet, who is uh, the global CEO for Chanel, and she is now the author uh, of the book Beyond the Label, Women, Leadership, and Success on Our Own Terms. Uh, talking about the, the, the senses and, and really having a, a belief in what you kind of experience, education is obviously an important thing, but there's a component to this, which I've brought up on the show from time to time, that life experience, and, and as you mentioned, senses, that plays an important role process in really understanding where you want to go and and truly the belief and and the promise that you have for your life, for your career. Absolutely. I think sometimes in today's world with all this big data and rightfully so emphasis on STEM, we ignore in a fact, in a way, this the, the that we are emotional human human beings. I mean the humanities, for example, and you know I was a literature major teaches us about human behavior, about human beings, connecting the dots and creating yeah. stories. So for me, I, you know, I really actually in some ways didn't have a choice. I wasn't a statistics jock. I, wa- I didn't go to business school. I, wasn't, I didn't even take an economics course, I'm sort of ashamed to say. Right. But for me, it, the, that was what I knew I could bring, and it was what I valued. And I, and I think for students and for you know, executives alike, considering what you value, really what you value when you strip away the, the labels, you know, when you strip away everyone else's expectations, what value you can bring mm-hmm. are questions that you need to continue to ask yourself. Do you see better things? Uh, obviously, I, I think to a degree, I think a lot of people do in the last decade, last maybe decade and a half, uh, of women assuming greater leadership roles in a lot of companies. I mean, there's there's obviously several examples here in the United States. Mari Barra maybe being one of the yeah. one of the best one yourself as well. But but do you see that trend picking up speed here in, in the next decade or two? I certainly hope so. I mean, it's still pretty low when you think about it. Yeah. I think that the, the statistics, something like 4% yeah. of yep. the women make it to the C-suite. And, and to be honest, I think, you know, we still have issues in equity uh, for pay. We still have issues with work-life balance and arrangements that allow for that. But I also feel like we look at leadership, the label of leadership or good leadership through a very narrow lens. Okay. You know, and we, we look at um, being forceful, being you know, really determined, resolute, strategic, visionary. And those are, those are important things for leaders, but I think we're ignoring things that are also intrinsic for women. And those are things like empathy and flexibility and being able to listen and collaborate. Yeah. And those are 21st century leadership qualities. 
So my sense is if we can begin to integrate that at the equal level is what many are calling now masculine leadership strengths, feminine leadership strengths. Yeah. If we could integrate those two, I think women will actually feel more comfortable, confident, and natural as they, as they climb the ranks. That's an interesting point, which I wanted to bring up anyway, is the fact that you are very much a believer of you don't have to be that rock hard, you know, uh, knock down, drag out CEO all the time. It, there needs to be a little bit of a of a mixture in terms of uh, of the approach that you have when you're leading a company, when you're when you're working in a company in general. Yeah, I told, I, I I believe it because I experienced it. Um, I, you know, I sat at the head of a table of ten men when I first came to Chanel, right. and you know, I thought maybe I should emulate the way that they are, or look to the models of CEO that I've seen in the past. And when I tried that, it felt fake, and it didn't work for me. And right. I think my team actually got had more confidence in me once I could actually be myself, and that meant tapping into some of those things, like even my own vulnerability, even being able to say I don't know or I need help. So how did that change, having that understanding and kind of making that shift, change to a degree the path of the company itself uh, and having that, that little different viewpoint? That's exactly right, because what happened is when I realized that this is what was helping me be a better leader, and I also started to realize at the same time that the world was radically changing right before our eyes. I mean, this Internet was not going to be a small thing. Right. And millennials were not a small generation. So when I realized that, I thought, you know, we're all walking into ver a very uncertain, very quickly changing territory. We actually need to adopt different leadership skills. Right. So it actually really did influence the, the course of events for the company itself. We're talking with Maureen Chiquet, who uh, was the uh, global CEO for Chanel. She has uh, put together a fantastic book called Beyond the Label, Women, Leadership, and Success on Our Own Terms. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We have uh, quite a few uh, entrepreneurs that listen to us throughout the course of the week, Maureen. So it's a great opportunity for maybe you to uh, pitch a question to somebody that has uh, been able to run a, a massive entity like Chanel. 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you're more than welcome to send us a comment via Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show at bizradio, B-I-Z radio, 111. Or you can use my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. When, when you are leading a brand or leading because you were also part of the of the run out of uh, of old navy as well. Yeah. What what were the what were the leadership qualities that that you either picked up from other people or maybe even figured out yourself that that were key things that you wanted to have as you went forward. Well, I think, you know, back then what was valued and is still important today are things like having a great vision and a strategy and and really being able to rally your resources and your teams. And those were things that were very important. I was very fortunate, too, to have worked for two great retailers, Mickey Drexler, who was the CEO at the time of The Gap, yeah. and then Jenny Ming, who was the president of, Banana, of, Banana, sorry, of Old Navy. Yeah. And both of them were great leaders in the sense that they mixed they had a combination of analytical skills, but also emotional intelligence. So I was watching, especially someone like Jenny, who was an incredible leader of teams of people, got us to rally around Old Navy, particularly in the beginning when we were starting from nothing, yeah. and balance that with great analytical skills, 
an ability to look at the numbers. And then Mickey, you know, Mickey used to say to me, buy it like you love it. And he would tap into that emotional part of the business that so many great leaders forget. You know, it's it's interesting uh, when you're building out something that is absolutely brand new, like as you said with Old Navy, I go back in my personal experience and, and I worked in minor league baseball for several years and and I got the opportunity to see the buildup of a new team stadium brand the whole nine yards it's it's an incredible experience to go through and to see something come from nothing and just kind of explode into something big yeah it was really exciting I mean you have to remember that when we started Old Navy and I got there right before it even had a name we had taken over these gap outlet stores and there really wasn't another concept or retailer that was offering chic, hip-looking, great quality clothes at a reasonable price. Yeah. I mean, this is before H&M and Zara and so many others really got the hang of it, and some, in some cases before they even came to the U.S. So it was an exciting moment to tap into a, a market that was completely opened, and it was a frenzy. I mean, in the beginning, we could not keep up with the growth. And I think it was five years, we'd reached $5 billion in 800 stores. It's kind of amazing to see what Old Navy has become now. And and, and I, let's talk more about retail in general right now, because it, it is obviously in, in one of the more unique times we've seen for this industry uh, with a, a variety of the, the, the big box stores, uh, you know, that have been in malls closing down. you got a lot of mall space that it, these companies are trying to figure out right now. You know, Payless Shoe, Store, Shoe Source announces it's closing down 400 stores. Uh, we've got uh, Ralph Lauren, which closes uh, its New York location, which kind of, I think, caught a lot of people off guard. There was an estimate I saw over the weekend of like 86,000 potential stores that could be shut down in the near future. This is This is a scary time for a lot of people in the retail industry. I couldn't agree more. I think it's really, really scary, and there's an obvious shakeout right now. What I'm seeing, and, you know, it's just, in, in some ways it's the beginning hints, but um, if I look at retailers that are doing relatively well, they're tapping into something that's very specific about who they are. They're staying very close to that, and then they're reaching, they're, they're joining that, I should say, with today's customers. So, you know, I look at a company like REI, you, yeah. they, they have been really true to who they are as a brand. They, they did that amazing opt-out Black Friday um, thing where, you know, you didn't go shopping on Black Friday because they yeah. encouraged people to go outside. So they're reaching new customers, and they're, and they're also doing that in a 360 way with the Internet. And uh, you know, I think of another brand, someone like Nike. Um, and, again, I get very influenced when I see something like equality has no boundaries. Uh, you know, Nike is a brand that tells us that everyone can be an athlete, and then they use that platform in a way on the Internet and everywhere that, that, that touches their customer in a way that's, that's also very relevant for things that are going on in our world. So, you know, hints of things like that I start to see and I get a little bit relieved that there are companies that are actually really figuring this out. But there's also the, the social component, which a lot of retailers are, are, are figuring out a, that needs to be a piece uh, of this as well. A company like Warby Parker with, uh, you know, a couple of Wharton grads uh, running the operation. Uh, I mean, that's a company that obviously – you know, it is doing phenomenal business, but it has at the core of it a very strong social message that it is trying to bring forth. That's exactly right. And I think that's true of REI and Nike as well. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, these are social messages and they're things we care about. You know, I'm very influenced by my kids, for example, and I think you probably are too. So 
you know, I don't know. Just sli- just slightly by my three. Yes. Right. And, and so a few a few years ago, I stopped carrying plastic bottles in the house. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, but things like this are important to our kids. My oldest daughter had a job. She ended up leaving the job because she felt like the, the sourcing wasn't ethical. So I think, you know, we underestimate, and I think it's we're a little bit behind uh, as retail, as I would say, in really considering where this generation is going. Which has to make you feel good about where we are headed in, in, in the next 20 years, the fact that th- there is that recognition by the millennials. And, and even we're going to see that with, uh, I guess, Gen Z is the, ne- is the next group after that, that, that there is this understanding. It's not something that is going to be here with one generation and then kind of skip a generation. It's going to carry on. No, I mean, th- this is not going to go away. I think I read somewhere that millennials alone will be, you know, 50% of the shopping population by 2020. I mean, that's around the corner. 844-942-7866 is the number you give us a call. 844-942-7866. Maureen Chagay is our guest, uh, author of the uh, very entertaining book, Beyond the Label, Women, Leadership, and Success on Our Own Terms. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, term you uh, bring up, uh, jagged career path. Yeah. Uh, explain in terms of what what you have done, what that truly means and, and and how it is something that's kind of important for for people looking forward. Yeah, I think it's really important for your graduates. Um, you know I did not I, I I studied literature. I had no clue what I could do after college. I did know that I didn't want to go back into academia. In fact, I took the LSAT because my dad was a lawyer, and I thought, I guess I'll do that, yeah. walked out after five questions um, <laughs> and had no idea, really. All I knew is I needed to go back to France, and, of course, that led to my first job at L'Oreal in marketing. Then I met the man who was soon to be my husband. We decided we needed to move to the West Coast, San Francisco. I neglected to look at the fact that there really weren't a lot of packaged goods companies in San Francisco. By hmm. the time I, I got out of L'Oreal, I was sure I was a marketer. I kind of had that label in mind. And not having many companies to go to, I was out of a job again. So I was walking down Market Street, and I saw this picture of Miles Davis, head in his hands, jazz musician, had always loved jazz. And I look at Gap, and I'm like, I want to market that company. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I ended up going to the Gap, and I'll never forget, I sat in this interview with the the recruiter, and he said, and I said, I'd like to market the Gap. He said, oh, we don't have a marketing department. We we have advertising, but you're, you're a merchant. And I said, I'm a what? <laughs> he said, you're a merchant. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I don't think I want to stand behind a, behind a counter and sell. I'm an introvert. Right. He said, no, 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 that's not what merchants do. So I ended up, without much knowledge of what a merchant was even, going into merchandising and loving it because I could use all of my skills and understanding emotion and how image and product create emotion in, co- in consumers. You know, and then from there, it, I took an Old Navy job when Old Navy actually didn't have a name because I was fascinated by this notion of being able to take my knowledge of beautiful product of great quality and bring it to a different market. So at each turn, there wasn't an expectation of, oh, this is what I want to do next. It was more staying in touch with what I really loved. And it wasn't defined by a job title or by a role. It was defined by what I cared about more internally and intrinsically in myself. Which means you were on really, I think, on the forefront of of this kind of shift of the the, the thought process of what careers are and and 
the the ability to have some flexibility within your career of you know being able to if if you needed to work a day a week from home because you you, you know you uh, you were taking care of kids or taking care of a sick family member or whatever whatever it was that's something that's still it's obviously quite a bit better than what it was you know 10 to 15 years ago but there's still a little bit up up in the air about whether or not some companies want to actually have that as a component in their in their day-to-day operations yeah I completely agree I, I think that though over time companies are going to have no choice because I really feel that the values of this generation, require a certain amount of flexibility on companies um, on, on their part to be able to really help these particularly employees, whether they want to have children, whether, as you said, whether they have a sick parent at home or whether they, yeah. they, they have different needs that we were not even recognizing. I think that's going to be I don't think that's going to go away. You walk into a class here at, at the Wharton School. You know, yeah. think thinking about that down the road. Uh-huh. And it's a bunch of seniors. What, what, what are the things that you tell them? You know, I think that you, you've got to really look at, and especially if you don't know what you want to do. And I, I've talked to a lot of college students who really don't know what they want to do. In fact, the other day I was at Yale speaking to a student who said, uh, you know, who was a graduate student in economics and said, I, I, I really don't know how I can make this into a career. So we had a chat, and what I said to her was, well, what do you love about economics? I mean, why do you love that? Tell me more. Think more about where you are in that and what what you care about in economics. And she she gave me some ideas. And I said, so where do you think you can bring value? I mean, what's your unique talent? What, yeah. what do you do? Where can you make your mark? And then what you know? Can you find a job that allows you to be to be in your you know the thing that you love most and can, that where you can bring value? And and if you can't, and you know, she, I spoke to another student who had an opportunity that she was unsure of. I said, "Why don't you try that opportunity? Yeah. See how it goes, and continue to be open and curious, and have an explorer's mind." I think for students, they so quickly get fixated on something that they think they want to do, get locked into that. I would say, have an explorer's mind. Uh, you mentioned uh, a moment ago that you are an introvert, and th- that's that that's something that we actually we talked about on the show about a week and a half ago. Uh, and just the fact that there is more and more of a belief about the importance that introverts can bring to the office, and the fact that they they bring certain qualities that maybe are unique to the business setting. You see that as well. I do, and in fact, um, I remember doing the Myers Briggs. When I was at yeah. the Gap and learned that, yeah. you know, I was like, I mean, I kind of knew this already, right? But you know, I was on the far, whatever it is, left-hand side scale of introvert. Um, but I realized that what's interesting about introverts, and I, I only can tell you this now looking backwards at my life, yeah. is that you're a keen observer. Because it's harder to get out there and put yourself out there and connect with, you know, great crowds of people, you're a keen observer. That's one thing. The second thing and I can't say this overall because I can only speak from my own experience, but as an introvert, I'm interested in one-on-one relationships. So I'm pretty good on the one, you know, in the one-on-one where I can create an environment for somebody to feel safe. Uh-huh. Um, and as an introvert and feeling very much like I'd like to hug walls at parties, <laughs> I tend, you know, it's the truth, I, I tend to like to create environments where people feel like they're safe to say what they want to say and be who they want to be. Maureen, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you very much. And the book is fantastic. And um, we wish you all success with it. Thank Thanks you so much, Dan. Thank you. Maureen Chiquet. Uh, the book is uh, Beyond the Label, 
uh, Women, Leadership, and Success on Our Own Terms. It is available in bookstores and out on uh, online as well. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.